if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. Sun is shining here. We're coming up on the Victoria Day long weekend. We're going to get an extra day off. That's always nice. David, are you getting out and enjoying the sun? I've been taking a couple of walks, yes. It's been good to get out after a long winter. That it is for sure, and nothing better to do on a walk than listen to a podcast. So, David, let's do a podcast. I'll ask you the question I always ask. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's May 11th, 1812. In the House of Lords, in London, England, the session is in progress. A noise is heard through the thick oak doors of the chamber, causing some confusion but no alarm amongst the lords gathered there. Suddenly a man bursts through the doors, shouting, Mr. Percival is shot. In an instant, the peers of the realm of England are rushing to the doors, but they will find no comfort in the lobby. There's been no mistake. Spencer Percival, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, has been assassinated in the very lobby of the Houses of Parliament, en route to address the House of Commons on the highly contentious issue of the Orders in Council of 1807. Wow, David, we start with this dramatic murder right in the Parliament and the Prime Minister, no less, Spencer Percival. Who was he, David? Well, he was, as you've already heard, the Prime Minister of England in 1812. And really, I should start, perhaps, with the situation that was going on in England at this point because Spencer Percival had been elected prime minister during the Napoleonic Wars, which are still ongoing in 1812. And really his political fortunes and his, especially his premiership, were in many ways defined by the ongoing challenges of fighting the Napoleonic Wars. And his reputation was as a hard man, a man who was willing to do what was necessary in order to drive the country to victory. But that created enemies for him amongst the people who felt that they were being crushed in many cases by his aggressive military policies. So Prime Minister Percival was this guy who was really pushing the Napoleonic Wars, trying to win them for England. But that's creating trouble at home, David. Who felt like they were being crushed by him? So there's a wide variety of groups. Catholics, for example, were looking at this time in history for more civil rights for Catholics in England. The ability to stand for office and receive elected office at this point was not legally available to Catholics, and Percival felt that introducing civil rights measures in the middle of a war was inappropriate, that they should wait until the war was over, which made him very unpopular with Catholics who wanted to see progress immediately. But it's not just Catholics. He was also unpopular with 
many people who felt that his military policies were wrong. At this point, for many years, Napoleon has appeared to be at the peak of his strength, and various people have felt that they had better ways to run the war than Percival with his focus on the war in Spain, the Duke of Wellington fighting Napoleon in Spain. Other people wanted to fight in places like Holland. But perhaps the largest group who feel that they are hard done by, that Percival is oppressing them, really, are merchants. The merchants of Britain feel that Percival's aggressive pursuit of the economic blockade of France, which he has consistently followed, are destroying their livelihoods. And therefore, amongst the importing and exporting merchants of Britain, he is extremely unpopular. All right, David, so we've already got a few big groups who don't like this prime minister. What about these orders of council of 1807? Can you tell us more about those? So these relate right back to what I just mentioned about Percival being unpopular with merchants. This set of orders in council, which are a way for a British government of the time to order their subordinates, their military, their executive branch of government as a whole, to do things without passing a legal bill through Parliament. And these particular orders in council order an economic blockade of France. They order that any ships that attempt to reach France from neutral nations should also be stopped, a full blockade, that there's no trade between Britain and France, and they allow the Royal Navy to use impressment of sailors of British descent to make up its numbers, which is unpopular in Britain, of course, because impressment is a form of conscription and that's never popular, but it's especially been causing heated problems between Britain and the United States of America, because American sailors are frequently of British descent and have get, been getting swept up in this impressment policy and been blockaded from their traditional trade with France by these orders in council. And that in turn has been causing problems in Britain as people worry that following these policies to win the war with France will start an additional war with the United States. Well, David, in 1812, I can't imagine that the Brits are going to get into a war with the U.S. That can't possibly be what's coming, is it? Well, it certainly seems at this moment like a war with Pres between President Madison and Prime Minister Percival is very possible. The U.S. has been increasingly hostile ever since 1807 when the orders in council first caused these economic problems in the U.S. The apparent weakness of British arms up until this point, because Napoleon has been doing well, less well recently in Russia, but he hasn't been beaten very often by the British, is the important assessment that the Americans are making, have made them feel more ready to attack. And then there have been a variety of incidents ranging from actual combat between American and British ships over the enforcement of the blockade. The Chesapeake Affair, the Little Belt Affair are two notable fights between British and American warships. 
but all the way down to the farcical, like the Canadian secret agent, John Henry, who was paid by the British to report secretly as a spy on the goings-on in the U.S., but when the British decided that his work as a spy was so bad that they weren't going to pay him anymore, he turned around and attempted to get paid by the U.S. successfully, actually got paid by the U.S. to reveal to them the secret workings of this British spy ring that he claimed to be a part of. But unfortunately, it turned out that although he actually was a secret agent for the British for a very brief time, he didn't know any useful other British spies that he could turn on, and a large amount of the money that the U.S. paid him went missing and turned up in the hands of a French conman he was associated with, and it became a big political scandal in America. But as amusing as it may be looking back on it, from the British perspective, it was a clear indication that President Madison was looking for British hostility, believed that tensions and war were very high, very possible. Okay, David, so we have some feeling here that there could be a war between Percival and Madison. We have domestic enemies of Percival in Britain. What is the reaction to his death? We've heard about the Lords, the House of Lords rushing into the lobby to find him there dead. What is the reaction from them and from the rest of Britain and the world? Well, Percival was respected in his immediate circle, in the House of Commons, and the House of Lords, people who knew him. He was a respected figure. Obviously, there's large displays of public mourning across London as the news comes out. Many people who knew him are, of course, heartbroken, and even people who didn't. He was the prime minister. He's just been assassinated. Even many of his political enemies are still horrified at what's happened and mourning, really publicly mourning his death. But as news spreads across Britain, and we must remember that it's not instantaneous at this point, news reporting is a slow business in Britain in 1812, and many people are only getting this days, weeks, or months later, and frequently in the form of rumors before it's a confirmed fact. And there are reports in several areas of people celebrating his death, sometimes publicly, usually his political enemies. The largest reports come from Liverpool, which has a large Catholic population frequently involved in the import and export trade because, of course, Liverpool is a port city. So it's perhaps unsurprising that that's where opposition to Spencer Percival's political career had been concentrated. And that's where you get some really shocking displays of public celebration that their prime minister has been assassinated. Around the world, ironically, you see more mourning, even amongst the enemies of Prime Minister Percival, in places like the US and France. It's very rare that you see anyone publicly being as bold as to fail to condemn his assassination. 
certainly other world leaders like President Madison and Emperor Napoleon, condemn the assassination immediately and in the strongest terms, unsurprisingly, because no one wants to open the can of worms of the assassination of political leaders in states that are in conflict at this moment. All right, David, if we start with the immediate question, I think we've got quite a few suspects here ranging from Catholics who feel they want more rights, merchants who feel they want an end to the blockade. I mean, even his foreign enemies. How does it go as they start to investigate this murder? Well, the initial investigation is quite simple. There are a number of witnesses who saw the man who shot Spencer Percival, and he attempted to flee initially, but when he was confronted, he sort of stopped. So he gets captured quickly. His name is John Bellingham. He's a British merchant. He had grievances with the British government dating back to before Percival ever got elected prime minister, relating to a long and complicated case of his personal property, which got seized in Russia when he was accused of criminal activity there. And he felt that the British government owed him compensation. And so the immediate investigation after he's been arrested soon turns to trying to determine whether he was a lone madman or part of a larger organized conspiracy. Well, that was easy, David. I'm glad we got this guy pretty quickly. But of course, with these assassination cases, there's always that question of who was also involved, who was really involved. I'm going to guess the CIA wasn't behind this one, David, as they were still a few years from being created. But you never know. Maybe there's uh, some sort of world government secretly working here. What do the conspiracies say? Well, there's a number of conspiracy theories that grow up at the time, listing all of the expected enemies of Prime Minister Percival, including all the ones we've already listed, the Americans, the French, the Catholics, the merchants. And certainly you can still find some people who believe those theories. Even today, there was a book released as recently as 2012, which was all about arguing in favor of one such conspiracy. But what quickly becomes clear as the authorities investigate in 1812 is that John Bellingham himself was just an embittered, mentally ill, most likely mentally ill by modern standards, man who shot the prime minister. Because there really was, in spite of this being a wartime situation, there really was no security in the lobby of the Houses of Parliament, no bodyguards for the prime minister. So the investigation finds very little evidence that could suggest a conspiracy. But of course, the official investigation is not the whole story, because many people in England believe that someone conspired to kill Prime Minister Percival. There's outbreaks of communal violence as groups like the Catholics get blamed and attacked 
by mobs at the time. And so it quickly becomes clear to the authorities that the most important thing to do now is to rush a trial so that they can clamp down on people's belief that there were organized conspiracies behind this attack and redirect the public mourning to more constructive ends, to trying to follow through on the government's plans rather than civil strife. It always does amaze me, David, how recent the idea of having bodyguards for world leaders tends to be. Of course, back in the day, you had like your knights and your knight guards, but there's a real gap there in history where leaders just had very little protection. And obviously it did not pay off for Spencer Percival. So that takes us to the trial, David. Can they really clamp down on conspiracy theories just by having a trial? It, it seems like throughout history, the courts have been able to do very little to end conspiracy theories. Well, they certainly can't stop people from believing in conspiracy theories. On the other hand, by creating an official narrative and then by clamping down on rioting and violence and the outcomes of these conspiracy theories, there's a more positive outcome that they're able to achieve. John Bellingham is quickly convicted of murder. The trial is rushed because the authorities want to have this official narrative that is so important to them in the public domain as quickly as possible. But rushed or not, the trial goes through very quickly. Mr. Bellingham is executed. And then almost as quickly, the government clamps down on any public display or organization or riot, which is not following the official line. And in that sense, in the sense of public reactions to Prime Minister Percival's death, the government actually is able to quickly suppress them and bring them back into just being a part of the ordinary politics of Britain in 1812. But of course, the effects of Spencer Percival's death are going to be much more wide-ranging than just the public displays in its immediate aftermath. Yeah, so let's blow out a bit here, David, now, and look at the bigger picture and some of the knock-on effects from Percival's death. What starts to happen? So in some spheres, the king turns to Lord Liverpool to replace Percival as prime minister. This is quickly run through. So in the immediate political effects, a close cabinet ally of the prime minister takes over as the new prime minister and pursues many of the same policies. So the changes in that sense are subtle. But there are other changes that are, let's say, less so. Support for Catholic emancipation, as it was known at the time, Catholic civil rights, and especially the right to run for office, is set back, arguably, by a full generation. It won't be until the 1830s that these the full set of civil rights that Catholics have been demanding in England at this period will be followed through on. Why do they get set back so much, David? They become associated, in a sense, 
with the assassination of Percival, even though the official narrative is that it was a lone madman who was not himself Catholic, who was a Protestant. People associate the cause of Catholic emancipation and the violence associated with the assassination of Spencer Percival and especially the rioting that followed it. And that, in turn, creates a negative impression that leads to a slowdown in support for these measures. So that's one big change where something that people thought would be very quickly possible turns out to take 20 years, largely because of its sudden association with violence that this assassination has unfairly attached to them. You also mentioned that Percival was very energetic in persecuting the war against Napoleon. So what effect does his death have on Britain's war with Napoleon? Ironically, in terms of the Napoleonic Wars, Percival's death from Britain's perspective has come at the right time. By 1812, Napoleon has lost in Russia and is retreating with horrifying casualties for his army, I might add. And this major campaign that is unrelated to Britain, but is so devastating to French forces, means that even though there's a slight but perceptible slowdown in British activity militarily confronting Napoleon, it has much less of an effect on the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars than it might have if Napoleon had gotten that kind of a reprieve earlier when he was not in the midst of starting and losing a war with the Russians as he is in 1812. And in that moment, discussing the reprieve that Napoleon might have had, we should mention the orders in council because there's a dramatic development there. Lord Castlereagh, who is Percival's foreign secretary and who remains Lord Liverpool's foreign secretary, claims a month later when the British Parliament finally gets around to the debate that they had intended to have on the orders in council when Percival was assassinated, but which has been delayed a month by the need to create a new government, Lord Castlereagh claims that Percival intended to relax the orders in council and end the impressment of foreign seamen. And with the impetus of the name of the assassinated prime minister behind him, he actually does manage to get the orders in council repealed, but they have much less of an effect on France than might be expected, because at this point, France is in no position to restart the trade with the blockade weakened, although not lifted. And they have much less effect, the repeal has much less effect in the U.S. than could be expected, because in the course of that month, while the British Parliament was delayed on this vote, America has declared war over the issue of the orders in council that are getting repealed. But the British don't know that when they do their vote, thanks to the communication lags between North America and Europe. So we foreshadowed it a little bit, David. After all, the US and Britain will go to war in 1812. But as you say, it comes 
surprisingly, after Percival's death, and as the Brits are in the act of removing this controversial impressment option that allowed them to force American sailors to work in the British Navy. So in the end, David, what effect did Percival's death have on the relationship between Britain and the U.S. if they end up going to war anyway? Well, the question is whether Lord Castlereagh was telling the truth or not. Because if Spencer Percival had, that fateful day in May, been intending to repeal the orders in council, which he could have done, and if he had not been assassinated, he might well have prevented the War of 1812 if the American Congress had been informed that impressment, the issue they were preparing to go to war over, was a dead letter. The British would no longer be continuing it. They might not have voted in favor of war. On the other hand, it's a dramatic reversal of Percival's former politics and general political stance, and the only report we have of it is from Lord Castlereagh a month later, and Castlereagh, of course, wanted to end impressment, so this is a very convenient claim for him, but certainly it's an interesting possibility that this is one assassination, this one madman, John Bellingham, may have caused the War of 1812 and all of its devastation in North America. It's something you really couldn't have predicted, David, that killing Percival would have been the way to cause the War of 1812. Before his death, it probably would have seemed more likely that not killing him would lead to war between the U.S. and Britain. And in fact, what happens is that his death is potentially the reason for it. Of course, it all comes down to we don't know what was in his head as he was heading to the House of Commons that day, David. It's all part of the crazy twists and turns of history and the counterfactuals that never happened. Thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy sharing these stories, Neil. If you enjoy listening to these stories, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. We love to see it. And you can connect with us on social media at When Art Thou on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We love to hear from you as well. David, we always like to end with something fun, a little quiz. And we are coming up on the Victoria Day long weekend. So how about we jump forward a little bit from the 1812 period and move into the Victorian period in England and have a quiz about that. Sounds good. All right, David, as we move into the Victorian era, one of the biggest problems for England was cholera. Which doctor who could have starred in Game of Thrones discovered the cause of the cholera epidemic? If I recall my Game of Thrones correctly, I believe Jon Snow was a character, not an actor. So I don't know if starred is the correct word there. All right, David, you're getting very pedantic on me here, but you are correct that Jon Snow, in a public health report, declared that cholera was transmitted through the dirty and polluted drinking water of London. So I guess, after all, you know something, Jon Snow. Of course, Queen Victoria was the namesake of the Victorian era. How many children did she and Albert have? How many children did Queen Victoria have? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I don't actually know the number offhand, but I can certainly think of a few of her children, so it can't be zero. So I will guess six. 
surprisingly, David, you're still not even that close to the real number. It's nine children for Albert and Victoria, and I'm not going to name them all, but you'll just have to take my word for it. Where was the Great Exhibition of 1851 housed? I believe that the Great Exhibition of 1851 occurred in London at the famous Crystal Palace. You are correct, David. Crystal Palace. What a great name for it. Let's go back to the more morbid history of Victorian England again. What was the leading cause of death in 19th century Britain? The leading cause of death in 19th century Britain. This is another tricky one. I do not know the answer offhand. And it's really not my field, uh, that sort of public health matter, since cholera's already been mentioned as a serious and ongoing public health threat of the time, I will guess cholera. It's a good guess, David, and it certainly did kill a lot of people, but the leading cause was tuberculosis. TB was responsible for one-sixth of all deaths in 1838 alone. Last question for you. In June 1840, how did Edward Oxford try to assassinate Queen Victoria? In June 1840, a failed assassination attempt on Queen Victoria, and I'll admit I've never even heard of Edward Oxford's attempt to assassinate her. Given the odds, I suppose the most likely weapon at the time would be pistols. It's certainly the natural one for an assassin, so I think I'll make that my guess. It is a good guess, David. You are correct. He fired two pistols at her while she was riding in her carriage. He fired both in quick succession, but the horses reared up at the sound of the shots and took off at a high speed, carrying the queen away from her would-be assassin, Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. Hope everyone enjoys their Victoria Day long weekend or whatever you celebrate towards the end of May. Thanks for listening.